We're continuing our summer series tonight on the topic of Christian freedom, also called uh, freedom in God's Son. I would say the freest and happiest Christians are those who are serving others the most. And for those who live a life uh, for others are those who grasp that they are free. Liberty comes in God's Son, not through the law, and as we'll see tonight, He's made provision for us, provision for that freedom, and that provision is the Holy Spirit of of God. If it wasn't amazing enough that God would call us and He would save us, at the moment of your salvation, He also provided you the most amazing gift ever, His very presence. And as Paul has told the Galatians earlier, uh, you cannot live the Christian life apart from Him, God never intended you to do so. And tonight we'll see how to draw from that resource, beginning with some initial ground rules in verse 16 that you have to understand um, related to to the Spirit and drawing power from the Spirit, or as Paul calls it tonight, walking in the Spirit. And we begin our journey in this final section of Galatians where Paul provides the definition of freedom and then the purpose of, of freedom, and now he moves to the provision that God has made for us to, to, to live in it. I mean, Christian liberty is part of salvation. You have been called to freedom in the Son. That's salvation language, which requires us then to ask, I mean, what does the Bible mean by freedom? What, what is Christian liberty? And Galatians 5.13 through 6.10 actually describes that, really from soup to nuts, from beginning to end. And a believer has been released from the Mosaic Law Code so that through love they might, they might be bound in service to, to one another. And God has given us the, His Spirit to, to live that out. And, and last week we saw that, that Christians are not free from law. We are now free to fulfill it in Christ, and we desire to. So let's read uh, just these three verses tonight and that we're, we're going to look at, e- Galatians 5, 16 through, through 18. So we looked at verses 13 through 15 last time, and now we come to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. So he uses two terms there, walk by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. And the true purpose of Christian freedom is actually a believer's commitment to a a local church. The word one another, as we've we've talked about, means other believers, not other believers out there, but believers in here that you're in commitment with. Commitment to, and and in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul makes this appeal to stand firm in Christian liberty. And that's the springboard for this final section. And then he begins to describe it in verses 13 through 15 with these, those five defining characteristics that we, we've been over. It has a significant meaning. A believer is called to the position and purpose of freedom. Number two, it can be distorted by the flesh. Freedom can be distorted um, which is the negative definition of freedom, what Christian liberty is not. Freedom is not an opportunity for your flesh, so it can launch covert activities. 
Number three, freedom's basic nature is love. It was for the purpose of serving one another through love that you have been freed from the Mosaic Law Code, literally to enslave yourselves to one another by the bondage of love. And, and the recipient of your service is, is your church body, the, the one another. Number four, the essential purpose actually fulfills the law. This is all review. Loving service toward others in the body of Christ actually fulfills the, the law because what comes out of the heart that love rules is always right. Or as we even reminded, reminded this morning in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, when love is operating in you, the law is fulfilled. You'll not always operate in love. That's why this verse is here, to remind you to do so. But returning to the law, as the Galatians were, were trying to do, won't help you serve. Um, it's only faith in God's promise of grace that can transform a person and give them a new heart like God. And the final characteristic is it has a potential danger of, of abuse. That's in verse 15. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. The picture of the, the wildebeest dying on the National Geographic channel, except this is in the midst of the, the, the pews in a church being ripped and torn. Believers consuming one another. That's what a church looks like that misuses freedom and does not serve one another in love. Freedom operating in the flesh destroys. It eats people. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. So there's freedom's position it's in God's Son. It's not in the law. It's in the Son. Freedom's purpose, committed service to one another in the church. And now freedom's provision, which is the Holy Spirit of God. And that brings us to verse 16 through, through 18, where Paul moves on and shows us what God has given us to operate in this freedom. If you don't have a law that keeps you in line, keeps you like two guardrails between the dishes, if you don't have law to do that, what has God given? We, we still have flesh that we have to deal with. What has God given in this, in this Christian freedom or this Christian liberty, meaning in the Son? Well, He's done something better than give us an external law code. He's actually given us the Spirit of God that writes that law on our hearts. And the provision that God makes to, to fulfill loving service and to overcome the flesh is, is the Holy Spirit. And in this passion, God gives the secret, really, to victorious Christian living. The capability that God has provided for every believer to fulfill serving others is His ever-present power that is now with, within you. When a person is operating in accordance with the Spirit's desires, they'll not obey the flesh's cravings, which are left over from the, from the fall. And Paul gives us some details here about the provisions of the, of the Spirit and the opposition that we face from the flesh that we need to pay attention to. So if I would summarize verses 16 through 18, I would say these are two initial ground rules about operating in Christian liberty. So he tells us, you're free. He defines the purpose of what it is and the purpose of it, what it's not. And now he lays some ground rules about how to live in it, how to operate in it. Then he's going to get to the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, which shows us which one you're in. If the deeds of the flesh are obvious, the fruit of the Spirit is this. And then in chapter 6, he's going to come back and show us what it looks like on, you know, uh, rubber-to-road level, in activity. 
bearing one another's burdens, restoring one another, um, bearing your own load, giving and, and doing good. So he starts with these two elements of proper operation, or these two initial ground rules about operating in Christian liberty. You must walk by the Spirit, and you must be conscious of the strife that's still there inside of you. And I'm sure tonight, if you're a Christian, number two is very easy. You're conscious about the strife, the battle that, that is there. And then he'll show us what it looks like to yield to one of those or the other, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But he starts here by this, by this first ground rule. You must walk by the, by the Spirit because He is God's provision in, in freedom. Look at verse 16. He says, but I say, notice it's another contrast, contrast to what he just got done saying about biting and devouring, but I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. You won't do what... What, what I'm warning you about in verse 15, biting and devouring one another. So he transitions to this new level of his argument with these words. This I say then, or I mean this. If you don't want to fall to the danger of devouring and dividing one another, you must live your life by the Spirit because He is God's provision. You must keep in step with Him. That's the, the antidote to, to the flesh. And he gives this command to walk. But I say walk by the Spirit, which is a figure of speech. To walk means to carry out one's daily life. It, it means your customary lifestyle. It means the habitual practice of a believer is to live by the personal power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the original language gives us some additional details that helps us understand what, what Paul means. It's a, it's a present imperative command indicating that this is habitual living. You mean it's, it's, it's ongoing. You're to, you're to habitually, or as you, you go about your life, you are to, you're to walk, you're to conduct yourself in the, in the Spirit. And when you put everything together that Paul says in this section about the Spirit, there, there are three components. Uh, First of all, he says you're drawing from his power. So clearly there's an aspect of the power of the Holy Spirit here. The law is impotent. It has no power. The Spirit, though, has power. So that's one of the things. When you walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. He'll use these terms interchangeably. But he clearly means that there's power in the Spirit. It also means that you intentionally align your life to the Bible. It doesn't mean some ethereal, mystical uh, magic. Walking by the Spirit literally means intentionally aligning your life with the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Spirit empowers you to do that, but the, the Bible is the line that the Spirit walks. And then it's His desires. It's clearly, this passage tells us the Spirit has desires. These are the motivations of God that you didn't have before salvation that now you do have in you. So His desires within you, the Spirit's desire, motivates you to do both of those things. Rely on His power and align yourself with the Bible. And you do that on a regular basis. Every day, sometimes every moment, you reject leaning on the arm of the flesh and you, 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 you lean on the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and you, you align yourself with, with the Bible. And you're going about your day, and you realize, whoop, I'm off track, and, and then you, 
you lean on the Spirit's power to realign yourself with, uh, with the Bible. And he starts here with this idea of, of walking. You don't yield to the Spirit once and become holy or sanctified. You live every day from now until heaven yielded to His power. Amy Carmichael once wrote, There is no sudden triumph, no spiritual maturity that is the work of the moment. Sometimes when we read the words of those who have been, bef- uh, been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step, by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories, by faithfulness in, in very little things. No one sees these little hidden steps. The, they only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. That's a good reminder. Sanctification is more like the steady rain than the lightning in the storm. And yet we, we associate the Holy Spirit more like a, with a lightning bolt. You don't get zapped with, with power. You, you faithfully walk every day in the provision that God has given you. And the provision that He's given you is the power of the Spirit and the Word. Paul also places Spirit here before the verb. You walk by the Spirit, but Spirit is front-loaded. He's emphasizing He is the instrument used to accomplish this life in in freedom. I command you by the Spirit, keep carrying out your daily life. That's the idea. What does that mean? What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Well, I could preach the rest of the the evening on the many errors surrounding what it's not. And I want to do that for time's sake. But I do think it would be helpful to describe for you what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit's ministry because there's a lot of confusion that that surrounds the the topic. And and he uses the term walking by the Spirit and led by the Spirit or biblical phrases. As I said, they can take on this mysterious notion and frankly can, can, can be more in line with the occult than Christianity. I mean, if you want more in-depth teaching on this, I would highly recommend MacArthur's book, it was printed back in the 80s called Charismatic Chaos that was re-released under the title Strange Fire. For anyone who wants to understand the gifts of the Spirit and tongues and the, and the movement, but, but to protect us from that, that error, I think you have to understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think you can summarize both of those, His person and His work, in, 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 in three categories. Three statements. Let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with God the Father and and God the Son. He's of the same essence, and yet He's a distinct person from, from them. And the Scripture always describes the Holy Spirit in personal terms, not an impersonal force. The Bible says He teaches, He guides, He comforts, He intercedes. The Holy uh, Holy Spirit possesses emotion and intellect and will in the Bible. The Bible attests to the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's spoken of as God and He's identified with the title Jehovah. The Holy Spirit possesses attributes of deity such as omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and eternality. 
And he does the works that only God can do. You see the Spirit creating and the Spirit regenerating and the Spirit sanctifying. Those are things that God does. And he's also equally associated with, with the other members of the Trinity. The, the Christian who is indwelt by, the, indwelt by the Spirit is indwelt by God. And he doesn't come upon you. He, he doesn't, I mean, you don't call upon him, call him down. You, he doesn't move like fog or smoke. He, he doesn't ignite like, like fire. He's not like the force in Star Wars. He's, he's God. And he operates in accordance with his word. And to treat him in some of those ways, not trying to be ugly at all, but to treat him in some of those ways is blasphemous. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He's God who works, not not your servant who obeys. The Holy Spirit is not to be commanded about like like a little servant given to Christians. I mean, if you watch much of the the teachers on on TBN or, or even in in some charismatic circles, the Holy Spirit look, looks more like a, like a pet spook who does their bidding than, than God. They act as if he, he, he's some form of divine lackey with performing whims of the believer who, if, he, if that believer just has enough faith, can command the, the Spirit to do anything. And yet the Holy Spirit has, specific, has a specific work, just like other members of the Trinity. And that's what you should be expecting that's what you should expect him to be doing, not, not doing our bidding. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation to individuals. The Father planned your salvation. The Son accomplished your salvation. The Spirit applies your salvation. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit unites the believer with Christ and places him in, in, into the body of Christ, which is the church. So the Spirit's the one that baptizes you in, into Christ, this union that we've been talking about in, in, in Romans 6 and and you're all in, in that one body together. The, the Holy Spirit produces fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we're, we're about to talk about. The, the Spirit indwells the believer. The Spirit seals the believer. The Spirit secures the believer. These are specific works that the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't just do whatever you want Him to do because you have enough faith. The Holy Spirit sovereignly bestows spiritual gifts for service to every believer. How do we know this? Well, because Scripture tells us specifically the work of the Holy Spirit third person of the Trinity, this is what he does. He's God and he works. And in his work, he has a specific goal in mind. He's the person of the, the Holy Spirit. Number three, he operates to magnify Christ, not to exalt himself. And surely not to exalt you. The Spirit acts in accordance with his role within the Trinity. You are just talking after lunch today about, about the Trinity and trying to explain the Trinity. And, and it's just an inexplicable concept. It's, it's something that's beyond earth. It's, it's something supernatural. Each person of the Trinity, one in essence, three persons, they, they have specific roles. And just as Jesus was equal to the Father, but, but he humbled himself unto death, he subordinated himself to the Father... He humbled himself unto death, even death on the cross, so the Holy Spirit fulfills his role to make much of Christ. He makes much of Christ in person, that's the living word, and, and he makes much of Christ in the Bible, the written word. One of the dead giveaways to me that the modern 
Pentecostal or charismatic movement is, is errant is the Spirit is the central member of the Trinity in, in their churches. The Spirit make, makes much of Himself in, in their worlds. He takes center stage. He comes with fanfare. He, and while they say in Jesus' name, it's really all about the Spirit, or better, all about them in some cases. And I don't mean all of them are like the, the money grubbers on, on TBN. Some of them are just good people that are, that are misled. And so as the, the Holy Spirit fulfills his, his role in the Bible, you see the role. In the Bible, you see the Spirit descending like a dove, not like a chicken hawk or a buzzard or something worse. He has come to show us Jesus, to, to make a, not to make a name for himself and surely not to make a name for us. That's his person. Let's talk about his work, the, the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. So three things again. The first thing I would say is, is he illuminates, not gives revelation. And one of the primary tasks of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the truth to men. Remember, he's to make much of Christ, the living word, the person of Christ, and then the living word. Here, here's the, that work in the living word. He illuminates. He doesn't give revelation. He did at one point but that, that revelation is done. It just simply means he helps you understand it. He helps you understand the, the revelation that he's already given. He helps you understand the Bible. That's the role of the Spirit. To, he illuminates. He brings a candle to, to, to your mind in, in the Scriptures. He takes the Word already written and he shines the light of understanding on it. He assists you to comprehend it. I'm sure as a believer, you, you've had that, that experience where you're reading the Scriptures and you understand. Or maybe before when you were lost and you would read the Bible and, you know, you would just say, A, I don't want to read it, it's boring, and B, I don't understand it. How many people have ever told you that? I don't read the Bible, I don't understand the Bible. And then you come to Christ and you're like, I can't get enough of this. It's like milk. It's like, it's like food. And I get it. I no longer have a natural mind. I have a spiritual mind. That's, that's the role of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the, the truth. But he does not give new revelation. He doesn't give new information. He takes the information already there and he helps you grasp it. Most would agree that the Bible is complete. There's a complete canon. E even independent Baptists or, or Pentecostals, that they're, they're no, there's no new scripture being penned. Nobody's writing or adding to the Bible. They would say that. And we'd all agree that you can't add to the Bible. But the error commonly believed today is, is the Spirit's role goes beyond the Bible. And somehow that's all right. Well, we'll all agree that the Bible is complete. Many are fine with the idea of the Spirit telling you something or giving you a word or a prophecy which is like a backdoor revelation. You wouldn't call it Scripture, but it operates with the same authority in people's lives, which is very, very dangerous because it's a backhanded attack on the sufficiency of the Bible. In some circles, that's practiced, obviously, to obvious extremes where the Spirit is speaking to people all the time. The, the Spirit told Reverend Money Lover, if people would sow a seed of $7.77, then God would return tenfold to them. Or God told you to do this, or God told you to do that. The, the Spirit speaks in these circles all the time. And the key is He speaks outside of the Bible. 
And what I want you to understand is that undermines and denies the sufficiency of Scripture and the Bible as our sole authority is for our faith and practice. How do you know it's the Spirit? Well, I just know. Well, how? How do you know it's not the devil? How do you know it's not bad pizza? How do you know what it is? Well, how do you know is because the Spirit illuminates the written word that's already here, and He helps you understand it, and then He helps you put it into practice. If the Spirit speaks outside of the Bible, then those thoughts or ideas are at least as authoritative as the words in the Bible. Of course, they would say, no, they're not as authoritative as the words in the Bible. But if you're making choices and decisions based on those thoughts, sometimes, many times, I've counseled people, Sometimes those thoughts are even contrary to what you might find in, in, in the wisdom from, from Scripture. Then those ideas are at least as authoritative, or worse, in some cases, more authoritative. And in this world, the, the Spirit's inner voice replaces the Bible's authority and its gross error. Number two, talking about His work, what does the Spirit do? He, he convinces, not coerces. I mean, John says the Spirit has come to convince or convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Remember that passage in the Gospel of John? It's the Spirit's role to convict or to convince men of sin. That means when the Word of God is preached, and the Gospel in particular is preached, you, you understand, and even beyond understanding, this is not just illumination, this is convincing you, not coercing you. He convinces you. He convicts you. Meaning you, you, you evaluated you. That, that's true. That's right. And I'm not right. You know in your soul what's being said is true. That's a, the that's a work of the Holy Spirit. He gives you ears to hear. He gives you eyes to see. Those are the terms the Bible uses for this concept. It's, it, it's not the Spirit's role to coerce you outside of yourself. And the Spirit doesn't come upon you and control you like, like demon possession. He doesn't molest your will. He convinces you to put it into practice. He empowers you to do that. Now, before regeneration, which is coming next, you don't have any ability to do that. You don't have any desire to do that. But the Spirit doesn't pull strings like a puppet. The Spirit gives you life, and after that life, He, he convinces you. He doesn't coerce. And I'm meaning coercion in a, in, a, in a negative sense. He compels you through understanding to acknowledge what you've heard is true. He enables men to respond, it, but it's the person who responds in, in, in truth. He does the work in you that you may repent, but it's you that repents. The common error against the concept of sovereignty is that the this red herring that somehow God's zapping you from heaven and making you a robot, and nobody believes that. Number three, he regenerates. He's not released. Just as the Spirit doesn't coerce, on the flip side, he, he does enable. It's the Spirit who enables your will to respond to the, to the truth. Your will, what you choose to do, follows your desires. You do what you want to do. So an unsaved man has corrupt desires and has no hope but anything but those desires. And so the unsaved man has a will. He's just operating in that will based on what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is corrupt or is deceived or otherwise. So when you're regenerated, 
You can get a new want to. And you get a new, a new ability. And the Spirit now enables you to respond to the truth. And that's why you do respond. He brings you life. Now that you're alive, you, you respond. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates men. means He quickens them. He makes them alive. He grants them spiritual life and ability. And he does this as he pleases, when he pleases, to whomever he pleases. John 3 says he's like the wind blowing wherever he wishes. It's commonly assumed today is just the opposite. People believe the Spirit responds to them or he's released in some way by their, by their faith. The Holy Spirit's not released by, by you or anybody else to do anything. You receive the Holy Spirit from, from Jesus Christ who, who comes to you through his own work, in response to the Word of God. No human dispensers of the Holy Spirit, no Holy Ghost bartenders. Those who claim such titles are guilty of arrogance and presumption. Now, after conversion, a Christian is enabled to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. That, that's sanctification. And to live that out in our daily life by that Spirit, and God says, whenever you do that, you'll not obey the, the flesh. Look at verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit. There's power there. There's aligning yourself with the Scriptures. And then there are His desires. It's giving you the motivation to do that. And notice this promise. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I mean, the second half of the verse gives the promise that will surely come to the believer who obeys the, the command. You will not fulfill. You will not carry out. You will not bring to its, to its end or its goal the desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? Well, Paul just described what the flesh looks like in operation in verse 16, biting and destroying and devouring one another, and there's coming a specific list. The works of the flesh are evident. They're plain. You don't have to guess what they are. Right here they are. Which is the exact opposite of love, the exact opposite of the law. This is a strong promise. It's the ume with the subjunctive, the strongest negation possible. You will in no way. I mean, Paul's saying there's an opportunity for the flesh that's possible in our freedom because the flesh that remains in you has a desire. That desire must not be yielded to, and you will not yield to that desire if you obey this command to live life in the provision of the Spirit. By His power, aligning yourselves with, with the Bible. And Judaizers are arguing that without the law, code, and traditions, the flesh is going to be unrestrained and trying to get the Galatians to go back there. And Paul shows us the, the problem is not freedom and the ending of the law code, but the ongoing presence of the flesh. And not only that, to increase the problem, the only provision that an unsaved person has to carry out the, the law is the flesh. So the methods that the Judaizers were calling for called the Galatians to live by the flesh. And the problem the unsaved man has is his utter inability to please God. And the problem a believer has is his flesh desires remain. There's that hangover from the fall. And the answer to both is God's provision of the Spirit. Regeneration for the one and living by the desires for the other. Yeah, illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. Um, if you've ever read it, you may remember this scene. John Bunyan describes Interpreter's House. 
which Pilgrim enters during his journey to the celestial city. Here's what he says. The parlor of the house was completely covered in dust. And when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the others in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. The more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. The interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water with which the dust was quickly washed away. The interpreter explained to Pilgrim that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man. The dust was original sin. The man with the broom was the law, and the maid with the water was the gospel. His point is all that the law can do with sin is stir it up, which is what it does. Paul says, I, I coveted before the law, but I didn't know what it was, but when they told me not to covet, that's when I really coveted. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wash that original sin away, and it's the Spirit who does that. And the contrast to the flesh and the Spirit is found elsewhere in the Bible. We'll see it in Romans 7 and, and, and 8. Again, you've experienced that battle if you're a genuine believer. The flesh, that self-regarding human element that remains within us from the corruption of the fall, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who, is, who in regeneration gives us a new nature and then remains with us. He's the one that you draw from. Herbert Jackson once told how, uh, as a new missionary, he assigned a car that would not start without a push. Here's what he said. After pondering his problem, he devised a plan. He went to a school near his home, got permission to take some children out of class, and had them push his car off. And after he made his rounds, he would either park, a car on the, park the car on the hill or leave the engine running. And he used this in uh, ingenious, genius, in, ugh, wow, this really smart procedure. It sounds like Porky Pig, don't it? He used this procedure for two years. Ill health forced, uh, forced Jackson's family to leave, and a new missionary came to the station. And when Jackson proudly began to explain his arrangement for getting the car started, the new man began looking under the hood and before the explanation was complete, the new missionary interrupted, Why, well, Dr. Jackson, I believe the trouble is a loose cable. And he gave the cable a twist, stepped in the car, pushed on the switch, and Jackson, to Jackson's astonishment, the engine roared to life. For two years, needless trouble had become routine. The power was there all the time. Only a loose connection kept Jackson from putting the, the power to work. You have the Holy Spirit of God. He's, he's there. You just have to keep in step with him. And we come up with all kinds of ways that we think are smart or wise. We keep the car running, we try. <laughs> or we have somebody else give us a push. This doesn't mean let go and let God as if you do nothing. It means you live under his control. I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but I'm getting ready to fly tomorrow for expositors going to the summit. I'm going, I'm going through an airport, so I thought about those, those uh, moving sidewalks. We got on one, and your spouse get on the other, and you try to beat each other. And one, you're walking half as fast, and the other one's just moving, and you, it's carrying you along. It's kind of the idea of the spirit. 
When we walk in the Spirit, He, he, he comes underneath us. He bears us along. We're still walking, but we're, we walk in dependence upon Him. The Spirit of God is not dead. He's very much alive in you, and He's the provision to live out the Christian life. Until you discover how to walk in obedience to Him, you, you may be saved, but, but you can live a very ineffective life. In fact, liberty cannot be practiced. Freedom cannot be practiced without the Spirit because of the indwelling flesh. Look at the promise again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Do you know the flesh has plans? It does. Your flesh has plans. It plans to lead you away from God. It plans to lead you towards sin. It's always there regardless of whether you're paying attention or not. And it's working its tactics. But this verse says if you yield your life to the Spirit's power, you'll not, you'll not fall to those plans. You'll not follow those plans. In fact, your power to resist those plans is the Spirit's desire. Which is what you find in this second detail. The second ground rule is you must be conscious of the strife. If you would at verse 17... It says, for the spirit sets its desire, I'm sorry, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. There's the strife. So that you may not do the things that you please. Depending on who is being yielded to will determine what you do. What's implied in verse 16 is now made very plain here. God, the Spirit, desires, His desires are contrary to that of the flesh, and the two are irreconcilable. And so there's strife between them. Contrary, opposition, means hostility between one another. Luke 13, 7 uses this word and translates it as an enemy or an opponent. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 uses this, this word to describe the Antichrist. And while some claim that a believer can reach some point where conflict between the flesh and the spirit will cease, Paul knows of no such doctrine. As the flesh is wholly bent on its desires, indelibly woven within its makeup, so too are the desires of God immutably present in you as a believer. And that's why the spirit is necessary. I mean, think about it. We're, we're not neutral parties. We're not unbiased observers. If left alone, without the Spirit, the desires that come from the fall will exercise their influence. That's also why it seems that there's a war raging in your soul a lot of the time. And sometimes you even know it's the war. You know where it's coming from. But, but it's powerful. <laughs> and you have a hard time. Sometimes you fail. When the Spirit gives you a new nature and He now resides in you, the battle starts taking place. And there's no battle in an unsaved man. The flesh rules. His conscience might, conscience might be tormented because he's been told there are rights and wrongs and the law is written on the heart, but he doesn't have the battle that a believer has. But the minute the Spirit of God comes in, the desires of God, they enter and the war begins. This is what verse says. That's what it means in verse 17. Verse 17, so that the result of this strife is so that you, you, you do not do the things that you wish. Not only that, in this statement he explains why we must walk by the Spirit. 
Because the flesh cannot accomplish love. It, it's contrary to it. Love is sacrificial, and the, and the flesh is self-fulfilling. Greater love has no man than this. Then That's how God describes love, for God so loved the world that he gave. And now in the spirit, you, you now have a sacrificial desire, and, and you can fulfill that desire in him. But you must remember it's a battle, and the victory is won when you keep fighting, when you keep walking. Because if you don't, something's going to win. You're not going to accomplish what you might want to do. This is like Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. A group of tourists visiting a picturesque village walked by an old man sitting on a fence. And in a rather patronizing way, one tourist asked, Were there any great men born in this village? And the old man replied, Nope, only babies. There's no such thing as an instant hero, whether in this world or in the kingdom of God. Growth takes time. 1 Timothy 3, 6, 522 points that out. Even spiritual leadership is developed. It's not gifted. The gifts might be there, but the development of those gifts takes time. You say, how? How, how, do, how do I do that? Well, it's one step at a time. It's consistent small steps. It's results over time. You ever watched an overzealous baseball player when his team is down by 10 runs, he swings for the fence at every pitch and typically strikes out? You don't have to hit a home run with every pitch. You just listen to the coach. Walking according to instructions. Everything's already been provided. You already have the, the provision of the Spirit, His power. And just every day, you, you align yourself with the Bible. That's how you stay in the game. Verse 18, look at verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul ends with a reminder after saying which one you yield to is going to determine who wins. He, he, he now ends with this reminder of his main topic. I mean, you'd expect Paul to say here, those who are led by the Spirit are not in the flesh. Because that's what he's been talking about, the flesh and the spirit. But, but he inserts law to make sure that we don't lose his main point. It was the, by the life-giving power of the spirit that the Galatians began. And they'll not be perfected now by, by the law. That has only the flesh as its power. He uses that interchangeably because that's what they were doing. They were operating in the flesh, calling it law. The law cannot say, faith does. The law cannot sanctify, the Spirit does that work. The law cannot produce love, and the Spirit does not come by the law. If you are led by the Spirit, meaning led by the Spirit in illuminating the truth of Scripture, you're led to align your life by, by the Bible in illuminating Scripture so you can align yourself with it. Paul uses these different terms to mean the same Thing. He equates it. Those who are led by the Spirit in verse 18. Those who walk by the Spirit in verse 16. Those who by the Spirit who, uh, who wait for the hope of righteousness in verse 5. And then in chapter 6, those who live by the Spirit. And if you follow after the desire of the Spirit, you're, you're not under the burden of the law for righteousness. You either follow the Spirit who produces righteousness, or you attempt to follow the law in your own power 
which produces frustration and futility. And then you come up with all kinds of schemes like parking the car on the hill or somebody pushing you. John Piper years ago came up with a little little poem, a little ditty. I think it's really helpful with this whole law and spirit thing. Here's, here's what he came up with. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, for it bids me fly and gives me wings. Run, Brian, run, the law commands, but it doesn't give me feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, for it bids me fly and actually gives me wings to fly. So here's my question. Back to Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Do you have a broom in your hand? Sweeping lots of dust? <laughs> Is it kind of cloudy and dusty? Well, you might need to call for the maid in the pitcher of water. And then you need to come to the gospel first. Allow that to be washed away. Lay the broom down. Call for the maid. Christ will do for you what you cannot do. He'll cleanse your sin completely. And if you're a Christian... You are by little increments, yielding to righteousness. You don't need to look for a home run every time. What you need to do is recognize it's not your power, that God's given you the power, and then your Christianity is as simple as you now have a desire that you didn't have before, and you now have the power that you didn't have before, and you daily just align yourself with the Scriptures, align yourself with the Bible, which obviously means you have to understand what the Bible teaches, which is why you're here. In order to understand, you solve your problems with the Bible. Your answers are in the Bible. And then you align your life with it. And as you do, like a steady rain, the water table rises. And every now and then, you might get hit with a bolt of lightning. I mean, the Lord is is gracious. You just don't look for that every single time. Amen? Heavenly Father, we do love you. I thank you for the strength to do everything that's been done. I think back asking my brothers even this week to pray for me to finish sermons and weddings and get ready for tomorrow. And they did that, and you were faithful, and many other people praying. I pray for them even now. Maybe something this morning or even tonight in your word might be helpful um, and be used for Jesus to be exalted and us to live in him. Bless us now with your grace and your rest. Prepare us for the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.